0: Our cities are full of ghost projects. They are full of lost opportunities, potentialities that could have prioritized safe streets, affordable housing, public health, better quality of life. But the reality of our cities, at least in the U.S., is that we don't realize those opportunities. Often, these ghost projects were eliminated or watered down to preserve single-family zoning and parking. We waste them largely to preserve this deeply unsustainable and inequitable status quo. But I know that doesn't have to be the case. I see how eco-districts are developed in European cities. I've worked on them. I know that new development can provide affordable housing. It can improve the quality of life for existing residents. I've lived and worked in pedestrian zones, in car light and car-free streets. I know the potential that exists. I know that a better world is possible. But time and time again, city leaders show that they don't share that vision projects are advanced that harm the public that destroy the climate that reduce the amount of housing especially affordable housing and so everywhere i look i see these ghost projects i see dead districts lost opportunities they haunt my dreams they're everywhere welcome to the livable low carbon city podcast the show about the interconnectedness of low carbon living decarbonized buildings and quality of life I am your host, Michael Eliasson, architect and founder of Large Lab. Our cities are full of opportunity. Some cities, like Paris, like Milan, like Montreal, are seizing those opportunities. They're rolling out protected bike networks. They're prioritizing safe streets, closing off streets to cars around schools. They're closing streets to cars and redemocratizing them for public space. Other cities, like Zurich, like Vienna, maximize the potential of public land for well-planned eco-districts and quartiers, Places with ample social housing and a good economic and social mix of residents instead of the sterility of luxury housing we find in American transit-oriented development. They incorporate open space, parks, affordable workspaces, artists' ateliers, cafes, shops, grocery stores, all the things one really needs for the most part in their day-to-day life. These are opportunities to improve people's lives to improve the horrendously dangerous nature of our streets in our cities today, to improve public health outcomes, and also the affordable housing crisis. It is also an opportunity to directly address climate adaptation. But in the U.S., we're not very good at maximizing these opportunities. And so I see. I see ghost projects. I see and know what they could have been. (laughs) And it is incredibly dispiriting. What are these ghost projects, these lost opportunities? Well, here are a few examples from Seattle. The U.S. Army had a small base not far from the center of Seattle in what is a rather wealthy and exclusive neighborhood. The surplus land was offered to the city with conditions, and one of those conditions was affordable housing. The city decided to move forward with affordable housing on the site, but it has been in a contentious fight for 15 years. To even get to this point was a ridiculous fight and in my opinion, is both exemplary of why we have a housing shortage, and also was one of the most pivotal moments in our city's current history when people started to realize how severe the housing crisis is and how entrenched forces will attempt to preserve the status quo and even kill affordable housing in this city. But this project, while it is a win from an affordable housing standpoint, is, in my opinion, a massive policy failure. At 34 acres, this site is a sizable piece of property. But the city is only adding 238 homes here in a handful of low-rise buildings and townhomes. Don't get me wrong, this is at least a step in the right direction, but the depths of our housing crisis are severe. In fact, a Microsoft study from a few years ago noted Seattle alone was short by nearly 200,000 affordable homes. So here was this golden opportunity to do something forward-thinking to simultaneously address our housing crisis and our inability to do anything with regards to climate adaptation, let alone improving quality of life, It should have been a slam dunk and we almost missed the layup the site is also relatively isolated many of the neighbors who spoke out against the project stated their concerns about a lack of transit a lack of grocery opportunities for residents that weren't as well off as they were others stated this was a bad place for affordable housing that perhaps we should put it in an industrial area or on a highway instead others stated the site should have been a school a park a dog run basically anything instead of affordable housing. And so the planning for this, from a city that routinely claims to be a climate leader, has been quite painful. There will be more land devoted to car parking than built-up area for homes, and the missed opportunities here are tremendous. What could this development have looked like in a city that is actually leading on climate and housing? Would it have been possible to accommodate most of these additional asks the neighbors wanted? I think so. And I actually stated as much when I made a public comment in support of this project a few years ago. And so this is how I think this property would have been developed in a city like Vienna. Instead of 240 homes, it could have been 2,400 homes with many of them being social housing, and this would ensure both a good economic and social mix of residents. The city would have increased transit to the district to accommodate the influx of residents, in effect providing a benefit not just for those new residents, but also adjoining homeowners as well. They would have worked to find a grocer to accommodate construction of a grocery store that these residents could afford and that they could walk to or bike to, and their neighbors as well, or drive if needed. They would have dedicated space for daycare so that residents wouldn't have to drive or bus to some other part of the city to drop off their kid and then go to work. A school would have been incorporated. Again, a benefit for those within and around the district and something that the neighbors were asking for. With 2,400 homes, space for 5,000 residents, there would also be cafes, restaurants, shops, it would have been an opportunity to also provide and incorporate community amenities and community services as well, and open space. All of this could have been accommodated on the site and still kept over half of it open for green space, for parks, even a dog run. The city could have prioritized climate adaptation with more blue-green infrastructure, mandated passive house levels of construction to keep wildfire smoke out, and to provide a buoy against energy poverty. The city could have decided that Instead of being a handful of homes, this would be a showcase, an eco-district prioritizing passive house, mass timber, modern methods of construction climate adaptation, social housing. This would have made it a built example, not only for the U.S. in how we should be developing brownfields and new neighborhoods, but also the world. And we're seeing this in other cities. The city of Berlin is building a 5,000-home mass timber, passive house-ish eco-district outside of Tegel. that will be almost exclusively social housing, affordable housing, baugruppen, co-ops, student housing, senior housing, right? So there'll be ample homes, there'll be schools, daycares, space for jobs, and all of it will be built with local wood, local mass timber. And the city of Berlin realizes that this is a really good opportunity to kind of put themselves on the map in this field, and so they're putting forth the effort and the time and the money to realize it. But alas, our city does not have the leadership right now that is capable of implementing such a vision. And so, I see ghost projects. This isn't an issue limited to just Seattle. I'm sure your city has similar case studies that you could present. Our region is presently spending billions of dollars to expand a light rail system that really wants to be an S-bond system. Many of these stations are built alongside or in the middle of a highway, and so the way that they are situated, it significantly reduces the potential for new housing or neighborhoods within a walkable distance of the station. Think about a highway. Now put a station in the middle of it and draw a quarter-mile radius around it. This is kind of the optimal distance for walking and density. Most of that circle is just going to be highway and the adjoining right-of-way, places that you can't build on. It's just an absolute waste. The housing that is being built ends up being alongside one of the most polluted, inequitable places to build housing. Highways are incredibly toxic. They're also incredibly loud. And so there's no good allocation for public realm or open space. We're not dealing with the noise. The majority of homes will end up being market rate studios. Perhaps there'll be a token affordable housing project or two, but it really negates the potential for a good economic and social mix. We don't really plan our districts to mitigate noise and to provide high quality environments inside those districts, but we could, and frankly we should. We also have incredibly wealthy jurisdictions, like Mercer Island, who are actively working to prevent affordable housing and density from being allowed near their stations. The state failed to tie housing mandates with the construction of the light rail stations, and so many won't have any new housing or districts around them at all, let alone anything to enable car light living. Others feature ample homes for cars, that is, massive park and ride garages, instead of homes for people. People, really the opposite direction that we should be going to lead on climate, to reduce vehicle miles traveled. It is going to be such an absolute and incredible waste of an opportunity to address the housing shortage and to drastically reduce vehicle miles traveled around these stations, and frankly, to improve the quality of life for the residents who live around them. And so, I see dead eco-districts. Frankly, this isn't an issue limited to just housing or station area planning either. I see dead bike and bus lanes everywhere, massive lost opportunities in how we transform our streets, especially to accommodate blue-green infrastructure and sustainable mobility. Presently, Seattle is repaving an arterial that runs through and connects two urban villages the very sorts of neighborhoods where moderately dense and urbanish neighborhoods are allowed, and this particular arterial also allows a fair amount of density alongside it. And yet, this repaving project prioritizes the movement of cars over the movement of people. There is no protected bus lane the entire stretch, there's no protected bike lane, Sidewalks aren't being enlarged. Not that one would normally choose to walk alongside what is effectively a four to six lane highway, given the opportunity anyway. These kinds of projects are massive opportunities to really enable a mobility transition. U.S. cities like Seattle, are seeing their vehicle miles traveled continue to climb, especially post-pandemic. A handful of electric vehicles are not going to get cities to meet their climate goals either. So these are lost opportunities to take on these challenges, like you see Paris doing, closing down a highway to turn it into a park, build ample protected bike networks all over the city. And in cities like that, quality of life, public health, they're taking priority. These are the things that we should be doing too. I realize it's not enough to just see these lost opportunities. And if I were to just dwell on these lost opportunities, I would likely drive myself mad. But there are tools to help city leaders, planners, communities envision what these changes could be like. And they range from the very informal to the formal. Tactical urbanism is a personal favorite. Recently in Seattle, we had a resident who painted a gorilla sidewalk in a location that should have had one, but the city refused to put in. SDOT, Seattle's Department of Transportation, claimed there was insufficient data, and yet numerous crashes have happened here. Cyclists, pedestrians, cars, all affected. Instead of seeing this as an opportunity to fix the problem, the city came in and erased the crosswalk, claiming it provided a false sense of security. But here's the thing. S.Dot stepped in it in a big way and, frankly, became a bit of a global laughingstock. But in that moment, it actually provided the opportunity for S.Dot to see why it was wrong, and now there's an opportunity to potentially add a crosswalk here. Finally. So the tactical urbanism allowed the space for the city to see why it was wrong or why something should change. And this is, frankly, the great thing about tactical urbanism. So, in short, do more tactical urbanism. Another option is architectural or urban speculation. Often it can be difficult for people to imagine how something like a street or a block or a large brownfield could be changed. One thing that has seen some limited success in the U.S. is for groups to put forth a vision of what that change could look like. At my previous firm, we had a proposal to LID I-5 running through downtown to add space for housing, offices, parks, and really reconnect to neighborhoods that had been ripped apart over 60 years ago. That proposal won an international award, there was some press, and now the city is studying lidding I-5. Again, baby steps, but at least it's movement in the right direction. Another idea, and one in which I've come around to more and more, is the ideas competition or workshop. And you do find ideas competitions in the U.S. We generally don't use them as a vehicle for change or bettering the public environment, rather a sort of way of padding portfolios or doing kind of busy work. This isn't really the case elsewhere. In Germany, ideas competitions have been utilized for a variety of reasons. In some, they are means of gentrifying lofty ideas and how a site or space could be transformed, what it could look like, what it could accommodate. It can be a means of pushing public opinion towards something as well. And often, ideas competitions lead to urban planning and architecture textural competitions, which lead to commissioned work. So it's sort of this continuum of pushing ideas and concepts into the built world. One interesting example of this, three years ago, the city of Hamburg decided to study what re-envisioning its magistralen, the main arterials running around the city, could look like. That is, how to take these inhospitable, polluted traffic corridors and turn them into livable, high-quality metropolitan lifelines connecting the inner city with the outskirts. They did this through an invited ideas competition. 14 teams invited to study seven arterials. There were lectures, presentations, documentations. Some 8,000 people attended these events. There's not a handful of people. And questions about livability, how to accommodate density, quality of life, new forms of mobility. It really became this discussion about how to turn these urban barriers into urban living rooms. And some of the conjectures are incredible. The city took this information and they're now working on a plan that will update these Magistralen, these arterials, uh, which should be released shortly. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, and if any of the proposed ideas make their way into this document. Our mayors and councils don't really have an incentive to push for rethinking dangerous and unlivable arterials, even though that's where we allow most new dense housing. We don't have the institutions to help foster these discussions either in the U.S. There is no BOW Forum. There is no IBA, the International Building Exhibition. We don't have these real opportunities to have social and lively debates about the future of the city. And so instead, we use things like elections or the comprehensive plan update as a bad proxy to kind of attempt these discussions. But this is frankly never going to work. Comprehensive plans are rooted in an inequitable and unsustainable status quo and are heavily biased against rapid change, climate adaptation, and affordable housing. And so we get these visionless plans. We get status quo bias. We have poor urban leadership that lacks a clear vision on these issues, which frankly doesn't help either. We don't have any U.S. mayors like Paris's Anne Hidalgo running on a platform of removing cars and adding affordable housing and closing off streets near schools, converting brownfields to dense, lively, and economically mixed eco districts or the 15-minute city, but this is exactly what is needed in the U.S. if we are to meet our ecological and climate goals, to ensure that we have safe streets and prioritize sustainable mobility, and to make a dent in our housing crises. The IPCC's Working Group 3 report released earlier this year was clear that climate adaptation requires dramatic shifts in the way that we get around the way that we live, but those shifts also come with massive co-benefits, better public health outcomes, more livable neighborhoods more climate adaptation, reduced urban heat island effects. And these changes, this urgency, this is why I formed Large Lab a year ago, to focus not only on the design side, but also the policy. We don't have time to delay. Every moment we wait, carbon lock-in gets worse. So if you're interested in discussing how we can prioritize and build climate-adaptive buildings and neighborhoods and capitalizing on urban opportunity instead of dreading the waste of lost opportunities, let's talk. I don't want to see dead eco-districts anymore. Thanks to our listeners for joining us on the Livable Low-Carbon City Podcast. We'll be back with another episode soon to broaden the discourse and highlight how we can co-create a low-carbon urban future together. If you'd like to know more about what Larch Lab is doing, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter. I'll add the link to the episode notes.